Mouse to Mouse, Episode 11, Nature Boy. I am very much a city boy. While it's true that Putney, the town in which I grew up, was more of a suburb of London than its inner urban core, it was, nonetheless, close enough to the centre to be more city street than country road. Chessington, the place where we live now, is rather more on the outskirts of the metropolis than I've been used to. But even that, with the most generous of definitions, could not be described as anything more rural than suburban sprawl. Imagine then how it felt for such urbanites to be carelessly wandering into the depths of a ponderosa pine forest with the warm Arizona sun beating down on our backs. This was the glorious reality of our morning at the Little America Hotel in Flagstaff. When I'd read that the hotel was situated in such a setting, I was instantly attracted to the idea. But if I'm completely honest, when we arrived, it seemed from the front view to be something of an idle boast. While the hotel looked pleasant in a slightly kitschy 70s sort of way, it didn't really seem to be as rustic as I'd hoped for. What I hadn't considered was that like all sensible establishments, Little America keeps its pine forest out the back. In fact, the building acted almost like a gateway from a distinctly auto-friendly ecosystem to one eminently more suited to a gentle stroll in a pine fragrance paradise. It was into this forest that my one man and his kids, Sarah was enjoying a well-earned extra hour in bed, expedition team was now trekking. We were on the lookout for indigenous wildlife, and in our minds, I think both the children and myself had expected to regale mummy with tales of encounters with snakes, bears and mountain lions. But the reality turned out to be much more about a lot of birds and a solitary rabbit. Mind you, I can only imagine what might actually have happened to such a brave band of hunters if we had crossed the path of anything larger than Br'er Rabbit. Annabelle is terrified of basically everything. Tyler has his fearless moments, but hides behind me if we see a dog any more fierce than Pluto, and I was once followed into the house by a frog and dealt with this incursion by swearing at it loudly until it left of its own volition. The Grizzly Adams family, we are not. Once we emerged from the forest, we spent a short while playing a game of horseshoes, another phrase one never hears uttered in London, paddled our feet in the pool for a bit, and then popped across to the Little America Travel Centre, which it turned out was actually very much like a British motorway service station, semi-attached to the hotel itself. Bearing in mind that we had not yet eaten breakfast, I quickly proved my responsible parenting credentials by letting the kids have ice lollies, popsicles to you, and then we wandered back to retrieve the slumbering Sarah so we could launch another assault on Route 66. I think I might have mentioned that rather like my obsession with Disney, music has a significant role to play in my life and my work. As well as the Disney course that I've discussed already in these pages, I also teach a class called Music, Culture and Technology that wanders through the history of some of the more popular and impactful sounds of the 20th century and have published the odd article about certain British guitar bands. It seems perfectly reasonable then that as well as tracing Walt Disney's fingerprints across America, we should also avail ourselves of any places of musical significance that happen to be in the vicinity of our route. The first such attraction that fitted this description was in the town of Winslow, Arizona. If that name sounds familiar to you, then it might be because you're a fan of the Eagles, who name-checked it in the lyrics of their debut single, Take It Easy, in May of 1972. Songwriters Jackson Brown and Glenn Fry had originally referenced the way that a girl in a truck had slowed down to check them out in our last stop, Flagstaff, 
but adapted the location when their van later broke down in Winslow. The good people of Winslow were so flattered by the attention that they erected a bronze statue of a man with a guitar standing on the corner in front of a trompe mural of a girl, my lord, in a flatbed Ford at the junction of the 2nd Street and Kinsey Avenue and named the area Standing on the Corner Park. Now, I must make a confession here. I'm not really a particular fan of the Eagles. I mean, I don't hate them or anything. In fact, I find quite a few of their songs very listenable. But I've never done anything as rash as buying one of their albums. That said, there are only so many photo opportunities that allow you to actually live a famous song lyric, and fewer still that happen to be conveniently located along America's Main Street. And frankly, I'm not the type of chap who could turn an offer like that down. So, duly, Annabelle and I jumped out of the car and posed for various shots for the family album, while Sarah and Tyler opted to remain in air-conditioned comfort. The slightly spooky coda to this visit is that, in looking up the highest original US chart position of the song, number 12 in case you're interested, I not only discovered that it achieved this placing on July the 22nd, our wedding anniversary, albeit 28 years before our big day, but also that for all its Arizonan credentials, the song was actually recorded at Olympic Studios in Barnes, about five minutes' drive from the house in which I grew up in southwest London. Altogether now, it's a small world after all. En route to our next stop, we heard one of the more remarkable statements to come out of our son's mouth, and I can tell you that it's a pretty competitive field. When you're a parent in the front of a car on a long drive with two kids in the rear, you tend to hone the ability to tune much of what is going on behind you out to a low and constant drone. Every so often, though, that buzz is pierced by something extraordinary. So it was when, amid the standard level of Armageddon between Annabelle and Tyler, he suddenly cried out in anguish that, Walt Disney's nose has fallen off! Now, I feel at this point, in order to avoid you believing that this book might have come over all Stephen King and taken a turn for the macabre, that it's only fair that I place this into its proper context. Way back at the Venetian in Las Vegas, we had popped into the on-site Walgreens to pick up some essential supplies, M&Ms and an assortment of carbonated beverages. And while in the line to play for them, Tyler spied a cuddly monkey with long Velcro-tipped arms and legs and the name of the city across its chest. As kids do in such lines, he urgently informed us that there would be no possibility of him developing to adulthood without said monkey, and we agreed that if he wanted to spend some of his dollars on it, that was fine. As soon as his new plush friend had taken up residence around his neck, Tyler declared that his name was Walt Disney, completely unprompted by me, I may add and that the reason for this christening was because, and I quote, he likes to walk around. Thus, ever since that moment, Walt Disney has, we have consistently been informed, performed a wide range of improbable acts, culminating in the sad loss of his hooter. My mention of Tyler's apposightly titled Monkey Pal, carbonated beverages and the odd coincidences documented above surrounding the Eagles has suddenly reminded me of another thing that had the Twilight Zone theme playing in my head while we were in Las Vegas. As something of a soda junkie, I popped into a shop to buy a Coke, and as is my custom, reached to the back to get a properly cold one. Grabbing the unseen bottle, I pulled it out, only to be astonished that the name on the bottle, and whoever thought of that particular promotion is clearly an evil genius, proudly read, Walt. I would imagine that the odds of pulling such a fizzy stone from the sword are pretty long, especially given the fact that Walt, while obviously a very famous moniker, and oddly also my granddad's first name, isn't exactly Tom, Dick or even Harry. Clearly, the only conclusion that we can draw from this 
is that our trip had been officially blessed from on high, and that Walt Disney was not only sans nose in the back of the car, but also symbolically in our corner. There were quite a few Route 66 icons in my itinerary for this leg of the trip, the first of which was located about 80 miles from Flagstaff, in a place called Joseph City, which, from what we saw, might well have been named after a bloke called Joseph, but bore no resemblance to any kind of city that I knew of. The Jackrabbit Trading Post bills itself as a convenience store and curio shop, although I'm not entirely sure what kind of convenience is offered by what is ultimately a little shack in the middle of nowhere. To be fair to the old place, it carried a very acceptable line in 66-related objet d'art, and looked for all the world as if it had stepped right out of Radiator Springs. This is not terribly surprising, as a framed letter from John Lasseter himself in the museum, like Backroom, made it clear that this was one of the major stops on the slightly more famous road trip that he had taken prior to creating Lightning McQueen and his pals. Indeed, Jack Rabbit's celebrated billboard slogan, Here It Is, can be seen with the bunny replaced by the silhouette of Stanley, the town's founder, in front of Lizzie's Curio Store in both the movie and the theme park land. Actually, although we didn't know it at this point, the shadow of that film and the fingerprints of its creator could be seen all the way along Route 66. And in some ways, like life imitating art, imitating life, the huge success of what Disney Imagineers debuted in Anaheim in 2012, in homage to the most famous stretch of road in the world, has almost metamorphosed its subject into a giant transcontinental version of Carsland. The stop yielded a pleasant diversion, a few souvenirs and another round of ice lollies for the junior Brookses, and of course included the requisite photo atop the celebrated fiberglass jackrabbit. Then, in no time at all, we were back, cruising along the mother road, and then, in no time at all, we were coming to an abrupt stop, as the mother road suddenly and without warning ran out. This is a lesson for the would-be Route 66 traveller. However much you might be determined to stay away from the wicked old interstate, it's just not possible to travel all the way along 66 because large swathes of it have simply disappeared. By disappeared, I don't mean in a spiritual, the heart has been taken out of the thing way, I mean in a replaced by a gaping hole of imminent automotive death sort of way. So be careful. Holbrook, Arizona promised another of those roadside treasures, and remarkably for this vast country, a short hop was exactly that, a mere 12 miles. It struck me as an indication of the huge difference in scale between this country and our own dear Blighty, that what often turn out to be relatively minor attractions are routinely advertised in road signs anything up to 100 miles in the distance. Similarly, destinations as remote as 600 miles are indicated as options on interstate signs. While this might not seem at all unusual to your average American, if you start at the southerly shore of Great Britain and drive north for 600 miles, your car will be basically floating off the coast of Scotland. Luckily though, with a fully refreshed complement of travellers, our short drive to Holbrook was accomplished with little fuss and soon we were exploring the Rainbow Rock Shop, yet another establishment that professed to be the real inspiration for Pixar's cars. Whether or not this boast was true, I have no idea, but I can tell you that even though I have no real interest in rocks, this odd and eclectic place that offered a fascinating mix of geology and down-home WTF lunacy was well worth the detour. Tyler, in particular, was agog at the distinctly paleontologically dubious dinosaurs and was busily engaged in ignoring our warnings to look with his eyes rather than his fingers. Let's face it, to a five-year-old boy, bin after bin full of shiny rocks and bits of petrified wood must basically have looked like the contents of Aladdin's Cave of Wonders. 
In fact, the evidence of his wonderment was pointed out by his sister as we were about to leave, when she pointed at the pockets of his shorts and asked why they looked so stuffed. On being asked what he had in them, Tyler indignantly turned them out to reveal a veritable treasure trove of contraband. When we told him to put them all back and chastised him about taking things without paying for them, he simply answered that he's always allowed to bring rocks back from the park or the beach, and while we felt it best to quietly dump his loot back in the nearest hopper, it's hard to argue with his logic. Once back on the road, we headed off on the hundred or so miles that would take us into our fourth state and our third stop of the day in Gallup, New Mexico, but not before we were once again touched by the fickle finger of American weather. For a good 30-minute period, the car was being shaken about like a rag doll by some pretty vicious crosswinds, until, just as suddenly as they'd appeared, they abated. Right on cue, as the last blasts died away, we passed a sign that warned us in big, bold capital letters that gusty winds may exist. Honestly, I have no idea where the rest of the world gets the idea that Americans don't do irony. Once we had escaped the wind and the satirical road signage, we were on to the last few miles, Annabelle declared that she needed the toilet. This might not sound like a very chilling statement, but any parent will know that this declaration only ever comes just as the car has passed through the last vestiges of civilization, and it then performs the remarkable feat of making time slow down and one mile become like the rough equivalent of a return trip to the moon. Traffic lights are, I am reliably informed, programmed to detect any family vehicle that contains a member in this particular form of agony, and then to do their best to match the shade of red that said member's face is rapidly turning. So it was that the last five miles into Gallup might just as well have been 500, and the site of our next landmark, the historic El Rancho Hotel, was greeted in a manner roughly analogous to the discovery of gold in them there hills. As I have suggested elsewhere, not least in the title of this book, much of this journey was predicated on my own discovering the America that I had grown up dreaming about. Of course, the central focus of this were the images that I had come to through my encounters with Disney, but a significant aspect of how I, and let's face it, so many other people, have conceived of this epic land was through watching old westerns in cinemas and on Sunday afternoon TV. In this context, the El Rancho was an absolute must-see, and not just for the bathrooms. Opened in 1937, the hotel had a direct line to the movies from its very inception at the hand of R.E. Griffith. If that name sounds familiar to the student of cinema, it's because R.E. was the brother of the far more famous D.W. Griffith, director of the legendary 1915 Civil War epic Birth of the Nation. Incidentally, the battle scenes for that movie were shot in the very same Griffith Park. No, it wasn't named after R.E. or D.W., but rather the unrelated Colonel Griffith J. Griffith, in which many years later, a certain well-known dreamer would sit on a bench and imagine a happy little park where the family could play together. The hotel quickly became a New Mexican outpost for the blossoming Hollywood film industry, and in particular, a string of productions in the popular Western genre. The guest registrations book read like a who's who of Hollywood legends of the 1940s, 50s and 60s, and includes such American icons as John Wayne, Catherine Hepburn and Kirk Douglas. To this day, the rooms at the El Rancho bear the names of its notable former resident, with the presidential suite carrying that of Matadei Idol, President of the United States and co-anchor of the live ABC telecast of the opening day of Disneyland, Ronald Reagan. Though our visit to the hotel was in truth little more than a bathroom break combined with a browse around the gift shop and a surreptitious poke about in the lobby, the place had an aura of faded glamour of a different age. 
While it was hard not to be impressed by its star-studded guest list, it was just as difficult to imagine many current Hollywood A-listers cramming their egos or their entourages into this place. (laughs) 